What I'd like to go about doing here is offering a brief review of the sermon that I preached this past Sunday, June 6th, 2021, at the Blue Point Bible Church. Here at the church, when we have our services outside, we do not record the sermon because of the sound quality. However, what I've begun doing is when we have our services outside, we will offer up a podcast review on our Buzzsprout site. Simply go to Blue Point Bible Church Podcast on Google, and it'll bring you to our Buzzsprout site where we've recorded these review sessions. Of course, if you want to watch our live sermons, which we do when we're indoors, you simply go to YouTube, look up the Blue Point Bible Church, and you'll gain access to our live stream services. Uh, again, that is when we're meeting indoors. During the uh, more beautiful weather season here, we're deciding to meet outdoors, and the sound quality, unfortunately, uh, doesn't work out very well. So where we find ourselves is continuing our Thinking Through Scripture sermon series that we've been doing since 2018, where we began at Genesis and we've been slowly and methodically going through the biblical narrative to better understand the details that are put before us and also to find application in the details that are put before us. So where we find ourselves right now is in the midst of this, or what theology has referred to as the restoration period. The restoration period that we're focusing in on is now that Israel has left 70 years in Babylonian captivity, they have returned to the land, and Ezra, this reforming priest, and Nehemiah, the governor who is set to uh, oversee the rebuilding of the temple, uh, they are now seeking to not only rebuild the temple or to restore, I want to focus in on that word since the sermon that I preached this past Sunday was talking about restoration. So what they want to do is they want to restore the temple. They want to restore the covenant and they want to restore the walls that are surrounding the temple to be built so that they could be set apart. What I'd like to do is go ahead and share a short history with you from a book entitled Victorious Christian Service Studies in the Book of Nehemiah by Alan Redpath. And what he does is he offers up a little bit of a historical narrative that I'd like to go ahead and share with you. He writes, The Jewish people had been taken into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, but in the year 530 BC, the power of the Babylonian Empire was broken by the power of Persia. And upon assuming supremacy, the king of Persia encouraged the Jewish remnant to return to their very own country and to the city of Jerusalem. Immediately, some 50,000 of them did return, and they set about the immense task of rebuilding the temple, which was so vital to the life of Jewish people in their worship of God. Discouraged by the opposition from the people who had settled in that particular country during the years of their captivity, and also by the immensity of the task, the Jews soon abandoned the work with only the foundation of the temple built. About 16 years later, when all the people had settled down to dwell in their homes, God raised up two men, Haggai and Zechariah, who challenged the people concerning their way of life and pointed out their neglect of the things of God. The people were inspired by the ministry of these two men, and the work of the reconstruction of the temple was again commenced. This time it was completed some 27 years after the first group had returned from captivity. Sixty more years passed by, and then a further section of the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra himself in the year 458 BC. This man, a priest who traced his ancestry back to Aaron, set about re-establishing the moral and spiritual life of the people who for so long had lived in that land in such a deplorable state. Ezra entered upon the task with a great deal of discouragement from other people. Much remained to be done. 
They were challenged on every hand by the people who lived in the country. The Persian king who had sent them back had no power to send them reinforcements, with the result that more than 90 years after the first Jews returned from Babylon, the walls of Jerusalem remained desolate and the people of God lived in affliction and shame. It was at this juncture, in the year 445 BC, that a man was raised up of God to match the need of the hour. Fourteen years after Ezra's return, God spoke to Nehemiah, prepared him for the task, and called him to serve the Lord in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And it is right there where we find ourselves in our thinking through the scriptures. So we have Ezra, this reformer priest, and Nehemiah, this Jewish leader, who is set up to watch over the rebuilding of the walls. It's important to know that the writings of Ezra and Nehemiah, according to the Jewish tradition, used to be a part of one book. You see, one of the bigger problems most people have is they do not properly place these details in the historical period, the, the writings of Ezra and Nehemiah. And therefore, they're not able to truly understand how this relates to the biblical narrative. We really want the Bible to be a relevant and personal message for us today. And that is indeed what the Bible is for. But the way the Bible goes about doing that is not all, all similar to the method of modern self-help literature, even Christian versions. Biblical literature doesn't communicate by offering simple answers and moral examples. Rather, the characters that populate the biblical stories are deeply flawed, often ambiguous, and a mixed bag of success and failure. The stories of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a realistic story of religious people who are zealous to help others see the world and God in a new way. After reading through Genesis to Kings, you know why the Israelites ended up in Babylon in the first place. According to Israel's prophets, it was the result of centuries of abandoning Yahweh for other gods and for allowing covenant violation and social injustice. Then when you read the prophets, who said that exile was just a consequence, but not the end of the story, God was going to fulfill his great promise to Abraham to bring about divine blessing to all the rebellious nations, which he would do through Abraham's family, despite their failure in exile. God was going to bring a remnant back to Jerusalem and make them the epicenter of the new kingdom of God that brings peace to all the nations. You see this in prophecies such as Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 34, all the way through Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezra, as I had mentioned two weeks ago, brings about reformation. Nehemiah illustrates the details that plagued the people of God from within and without during this time of restoration. What we read in the book of Nehemiah, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, the people heard the law and they wept. This is very similar to what we read in Ezra chapter 3. Let's say that the beginning of our restoration, the beginning of the restoration that matters, begins with a moment of repentance, even so much that it would cause us to weep. Then, and again, what we're seeing here is a sort of outline for restoration. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, we read that after they weep because they're broken and repentant, they notice that the joy of the Lord is their strength. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, uh, the people separate themselves and confess. So now that they've repented, they've seen that the Lord is the source of their strength, now they've separated themselves and confessed to God that they're going to live in light of that. 
Then we see this long prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 38. And what we see in that prayer is a necessary recounting of what the Lord has done for his people. We read in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for the good of those that love God. And we see that in Nehemiah's, well, the prayer that we read here in Nehemiah chapter 9. In Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, we read that these Israelites now that are in the land, uh, these Jews, uh, will not be like the people around them. That's what they say. They say, we will not be like the people around them. We know they're going to honor the Sabbath. They're going to seek to walk worthy of this covenant that the Lord has put before them. However, by the time we get to the end of the book, Nehemiah chapter 13, specifically verse 25, we find Nehemiah so angry to the point of tears that he's beating the Israelites for violating the covenant commands. Safe to say that restoration is not all that easy, especially when it's being done in the flesh. There are five important themes that flow through Ezra and Nehemiah. Number one, the restoration of Israel was God's work. He changed the hearts of the Persian emperors and those who supported them. God raised up prophets to speak on his behalf. God protected his people on their return and spared them from their enemies. He also brought Ezra and Nehemiah to perform their separate ministries and brought about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Number two, the restorative work was complete even though Israel did not have political independence. The temple was rebuilt in its services, the daily sacrifices, the the priestly ministries, the annual festivals, they were all brought back to daily life in accordance with the law of Moses and the regulations put into place by David. The covenant was renewed despite the fact that they were still under occupation. Number three, just as God used other worldly powers to judge and exile his people, he used them to restore his people to the land. He originally allowed Judah and Israel to be conquered and sent off to exile. Now he was using some of those same world powers to restore Israel and Jerusalem. Number four, the restoration of Israel was not easy. It was met with opposition at nearly every turn. However, that opposition was met at every turn and ultimately did happen. Number five, the restored people of Israel were in constant need for correction and reformation. They remained a wayward people who needed to be reminded of their covenant with God. After restoration, everything was not okay. The people still needed to be directed and to remember God who had restored them. Why is that important? Because we see a flip side of those five points that apply to us, and I'm going to go ahead and share them with you. Number one, our restoration and our return to normal life is God's work, especially after we've witnessed this recent pandemic. He is working behind the scenes to restore his creation as he always has. Number two, we may be restored and returned to normal, even though the new normal might look very different. Israel was restored without being restored politically. God will restore our lives, but everything may not be the same. Number three, similar to the first point, God is working behind the scenes to restore his world. We don't often link religion to politics, but in some form or another, God is using those in charge of our world to bring about his purposes. Number four, restoration is not going to be easy. We are still going to face challenges as we return to normalcy. We will face challenges individually and as a human race. The title of this sermon, matter of fact, speaks to that. If God's not in it. One of the points I had made in the sermon was that oftentimes people think that if it's not easy peasy, if the road ahead is not paved before me, that God's not in it. That is not necessarily true. Matter of fact, the opposite is true. Usually God will lead us into times of challenge and opposition. We will face challenges individually and as a human race. 
That's in the world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. And then number five, we will still need constant reminders of our relationship with God. In times of distress and uncertainty, we often, more than other times, look to God for answers. This is a reminder that when we get back to our new normal, we, were, we are still going to need God and reminders of God to move forward. So what is our role in restoration? Because again, that's what we're seeing. This theme in, in Ezra and Nehemiah is a picture of restoration. I don't believe it's remiss to say that we, the people of God, will not participate in restoration if God does not go with us. That's what Moses had done in Exodus chapter 33, verses 15 through 18. As Moses is receiving the covenant, he basically says, Lord, if you're not in it and you're not with us, we will not go. And we as the people of God need to see that in areas of restoration, that if God's not in it, the restoration will not come about. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we also see David going about restoring the glory of God. In Ezra and Nehemiah's time, it was the temple, it was the covenant, it was the wall. I ask us to consider applicationally, what things do we see that lay in ruins and in need of restoration today? Dare I offer up some uh, contemporary examples? One might be our society. Another one might be government. Another one might be relationships, financial systems, uh, justice, uh, happiness in general. These are all things that we want to see restored to their fullest potential. However, if God's not in it, the restoration will not come about in a way that honors God nor edifies those that are his. A few pointers that we gain from Ezra and Nehemiah should be that when we go about efforts of restoration, true leaders cannot generate true restoration or true revival, but rather they can prevent it from happening. Despite best intentions, Ezra and Nehemiah are not able to accomplish the transformation of the human heart, and neither are leaders today. But rather, the restoration that we seek is the restoration that started with John's baptism, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness, very much similar to what's happening at the beginning of Nehemiah's restoration. The people are crying, or even Ezra's restoration, where the people are crying because they've recognized they've done wrong and are in need of forgiveness. Jesus Christ goes ahead and he is the one who brings about all the way up to his coming. We read in Acts chapter 3 verse 21 that the time of restoration would be at the time of the coming of the Lord. And we know that that was in AD 70 when all things were restored to the people of God. The people of God were placed in the land, so to speak, were given everything pertaining to life and godliness. The temple of the Lord was set up and established and it was as though we are spiritually living in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. My point in all of this was that in our society, we see a, a call for restoration, a call for revival, a call for reformation. But if the Lord is not in those things, if the Lord is not in the details, the restoration will not suffice. The restoration will not be that which brings glory to God. True restoration, the restoration that really brings healing to this world, happens when God himself enters therein. That's why it's important for us to say if God's not in it, we're not involved. What does it mean when God is in it? And the two points I had brought up were that first it will be it will require a death to self. That if we're going to truly see restoration in all the areas that we want to see restoration in, it's going to require that we are dying to ourselves and that rather than our carnal desires and purposes, we must want the Lord's purposes and desires. And then the second thing is that it's not necessarily going to be easy. Just as it was a trial in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read in Nehemiah that the people worked with a sword in one hand and worked with a hammer in the other. 
They were always ready to fight. And we, as Christians, we as those bringing true restoration into this world by way of God's Spirit, we must be willing to fight as well. It was John Calvin who said, The eyes cannot see what is right, the ears cannot hear, the feet cannot guide us in the right way until we are united to Christ. Therefore, uh, demanding that, uh, that death to self. Smith Wigglesworth, basically building on top of the same concept, said, The way into glory is in the flesh uh, by being torn away from the world and separated unto God. I share with you a bunch of verses in the description box of this sermon uh, that lean on restoration. I hope that you might go ahead and visit those verses. The greatest restoration and reformation ever made was Christ accomplishing the salvific work that made it possible for him to dwell within us and clear that we and what made clear that we are his people and he is our God. The hope and of glory was Christ in us, which we read in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. And this is exactly what we celebrate during the Lord's table, which we celebrated here this past Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. Since Christ came, we no longer declare his death as our profession, which we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but rather his life. We, the church, are the deposit of his life. It is that truth that compels us toward praise and further efforts of restoration. Our restoration, the message that we Christians carry, is not one that we want to see a physical temple in Jerusalem rebuilt or walls built around a physical city or the Mosaic law being reestablished, but rather the covenant continuation and legacy of those in Christ is brought about and explained in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes and have right to the tree of life. Through evangelism and outreach, we have the blessing and the responsibility of leading forward the restoration God is involved with. May we discern that reality and work and fight. As William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, remarked, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight while little children go hungry as they do now. I'll fight while men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now. I'll fight while there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets. While there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. I pray that this message, this review, has encouraged you to go back and read through Ezra and Nehemiah. Become familiar with that historical period so that you might further see what God has restored and how he continues to bring about that restoration in our world today. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Please visit bluepointbiblechurch.org to gain more information about our church here at Blue Point, as well as to stay in communication and stay updated with what we're offering.